the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is perhaps just a generation or so ago that we argued in apologetics debates, particularly, that God said, hath God said. Well, today the debate is simply that God, meaning does he even exist? Nietzsche asserted a century ago that God was dead, suggesting at least at the minimum that at one time God did exist. But today we debate his very existence ever. A new book helps you address a lot of these questions, perhaps questions you yourself have struggled with, certainly questions that maybe you struggle with in answering for uh, friends as you share your faith. The book is called simply, Does God Exist? and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Its author is a lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder and host of the video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, Pastor Bobby Conway. Pastor Conway, great to have you on the program. Hey, it's good to be with you, buddy. Well, I guess these days, particularly with what we see going on in the world around us, whether we talk about politics or the spate of violence in particular, and a lot of it taking place in God's name or in Allah's name, and a lot of people get confused between the two, a lot of Christians really struggle to try to come up with these answers that will help satisfy uh, friends as they or co-workers as they share their faith. And in looking at your new book, I mean, it certainly isn't a 500-page tome, uh, you could almost practically memorize the entire book and toward that degree. I just wonder if that was your intent. Well, what I did want to do is help uh, my readers to gain some confidence around curious questions that they may have or people whom they're engaging conversations with might have. And so what I did basically is I've got almost a thousand videos on our One Minute Apologist YouTube uh, ministry site where I interview world-leading philosophers and apologists, and then I do a lot of the questions myself. And I just thought to take, you know, 50 or so of those type of questions that I do in video format and then put them in written format. So I wrote that book to give people a tool of some of the questions that people are asking today. And what I like about the book, Pastor, is it is literally a book that you could memorize. I mean, you, you could almost spend a few minutes with this every day and committed a lot of the answers uh, to memory. There, there's some give and take in here, questions to consider, uh, memory verses that, uh, that tie into uh, each of the questions, along with uh, information concerning the links to the accompanied YouTube videos that you've produced that I think really can help equip Christians for, as, as Paul told us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Yes, and I also think that people want information, especially in this age, that is digestible, and I think that there is a place for uh, the tome, and I'm all about that. I read those myself. I think that it's good, though, for people to have a tool, and being a pastor, I have to be a pragmatician, uh, and I think that this is something that can serve as a tool whereby people can get together in small groups or in coffee shops, uh, or they can just have it as a resource manual to look up questions either about theology or worldview or 
sexual issues or some of the different things that we're facing right before us right now. Uh, one of the things that I like about your approach to this, so when I first picked up the book, I thought, well, we're going to expect to find some basic questions in there, sort of the questions of time and memoriam, that God, does God exist, what about the virgin birth, uh, uh, is Jesus equal to, to God, things of this sort that are kind of basic Christian theology. But you have not shied away from dealing with any of the contemporary questions, so to speak, of our day either. For example, I, I first read it and thought, did I read that right? Will there be sex in heaven? Uh, you, you don't shy away, shy away from any of these topics, do you? Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is people have these questions, and I think in the Church we need to say, hey, look, if we're sincerely striving to learn, it's okay to ask questions. Uh, and will there be sex in question? I mean, that's not uh, out of reason to ask that kind of question. Uh, will I still be married in question uh, in heaven? I mean, these are questions that, that people thought about. In fact, that Jesus was uh, posed such questions a question, and we learn that, you know what, we're going to be, uh, you know, like the angels in heaven, neither given in marriage. So there's going to be a marriage on earth till death do us part. So there's not going to be sex in heaven, but I think that that's not anything for us to dread. It's hard to imagine, as adults, a world where there cannot be intimacy uh, between a person that we love, but we can know in heaven that the purpose of sex here on earth is for mutual pleasure and procreation, and our ultimate pleasure will be found in God, and there will be no procreative reason for us to have sex in heaven. What's good, too, I think, about your approach to the book, Pastor, is that in addition to helping tackle questions that uh, we could run into day by day as we share our faith with others, there are also some very timely topics that, quite frankly, a lot of Christians struggle with themselves. They don't quite understand the answers, and we live in a society that not only promotes this sense of, of certainly uh, uh, theological pluralism, but also from the standpoint of wanting to be, quote-unquote, tolerant, uh, and yet we say, gee, how, how do I come about giving an articulate response to some of the more controversial topics. I mean, take, for example, the matter of marijuana use. Now, here in California, we're going to head to the ballot in November, not only decide who the next president will be, U.S. senator from California, but also decide whether or not we should follow in the footsteps of Colorado and legalize recreational use of marijuana. This is one of the topics that you've chosen to deal with. I discern between medical marijuana and uh, recreational use of marijuana. I grew up in California myself, and I've been clean since October 9, 1994. I got clean at my first semester at Chico State, of all places. And uh, I don't know if it's still the party school it was back in the, in the 90s. But it has a reputation. There, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought quite the place to go and get sober. I went to an AA meeting October 9, 1994. And I've been clean ever since. And so I've smoked a lot of dope myself in California, so I'm not throwing uh, stones at those who, uh, who do. But I will say that I know back then a good hit of some green butt could get a high going. And with the THC levels where they are today, I just don't see how we can uh, maintain, uh, you know, temple care. The Bible talks about, you know, we're to honor our bodies, we're to take care of our temple, it kills brain cells. I think from a standpoint of medical use, I can see a real avenue for that. Suppose we were to wake up and read in a newspaper and we'd never heard about marijuana before, and we didn't have the negative connotations, and we saw scientists have found a leaf that can help those with cancer patients who are cancer patients to digest their food, 
to help them to gain weight and to assuage them in the midst of their pain, I don't think we'd think anything of it because people use uh, many medications that are far worse right now than marijuana. So I can say I could see it being okay there, but just recreationally, I think that it's hard to make that case. If you've just joined our conversation, visiting tonight with the lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, the author of the new book called Does God Exist? This and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible. It is uh, bite-sized, which is what I like about this. Um, A lot of people get put off. Questions arise, they don't know how to answer them, and they're too intimidated to uh, go out and buy a 500-page tome on the topic. And so as a result, they just sort of maintain their sense of ignorance. But it's hard to be effective when it comes to witnessing today and not be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, as Paul said. Not be uh, prepared to engage in, in thoughtful reasoned give and take, and to be able to take a stand. And most importantly, not only be educated and equipped ourselves, but then share that knowledge with others as we share our faith. And that's a long way toward what this book uh, is is focused on doing. Newly published by Harvest House, by the way. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation, deal with a few other hot topics of the day as our visit with Pastor Bobby Conway, author of Does God Exist? continues here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Helping you answer the big questions of the day, uh, perhaps for yourself, certainly for others as you share your faith, having a sense of uh, uh, solid discipleship where we are learned a bit, uh, we are trained, so to speak, within the basics of apologetics is is kind of uh, unfortunately passing away, meaning that fewer and fewer churches um, underscore the importance of this. And yet, I think really to be an effective witness in sharing our faith and to also have a good sense of grounding in our own relationship with Christ, it's important that we have some of these fundamental answers, a fundamental understanding of our faith. And uh, the new book, Does God Exist?, and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible goes a long way toward, in a very uh, direct fashion, answer many of those questions. Its author is our guest today, Bobby Conway. He is also the lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also authored other books and uh, is the uh, founder and host, by the way, of the rapidly growing video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, which is, I guess, Bobby, if you just do a um, a search in YouTube, all of the link will come up? Absolutely, yeah. Just type in One Minute Apologist. We have a channel in YouTube, or they can go to the OneMinuteApologist.com, and they can learn more about the videos there. And this is really, I mean, I, I think of not just... Uh, new believers, but uh, good refresher course for some of us that have been in faith for a lot of years, as well as an opportunity to get studied with a biblical perspective on some of the so-called hot topics of the day, which I know a lot of believers struggle with. I mean, for example, this issue of uh, transvestitism or sex change uh, has been a lot in the news lately, particularly with uh, uh, Bruce Jenner capturing a lot of headlines. And I know that when the topic comes up, other than uh, sharing a sense of uh, disbelief or uh, uh, frustration with the topic, many, many Christians, I think, are just frustrated. They don't know how to answer. They don't know how to respond when this debate or this topic is approached. It's too bad that uh, the church has a reputation uh, for being bombastic at times. By and large, uh, the Christians that I come in contact are wonderful people, uh, humble people, but a lot of times they're not ready to engage in conversation. Uh, with people. Those who would say apologetics 
uh, isn't important. Uh, obviously, uh, haven't been out sharing uh, with non-believers or engaging them with questions about their faith, because those questions will come up. And in, in particular, this one on sex change, uh, this is a huge issue in our culture right now. And I do think that we should be looking for ways to exhibit compassion. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to feel trapped uh, with another gender inside of my body. Uh, at the same token, I think we can show a compassion. You know, I can't, you know, imagine what that would be like. I'm not trying to throw stones at you here. I'm just trying to be faithful to the way that I believe that God created us. And I believe that uh, the chromosomal structure cannot be changed through a sex change. Uh, our chromosomal structure reveals whether we're male or female. Now, there is an intersex condition that some would have where maybe they might have some, you know, partial male and partial female body parts, and I can understand the situation like that where they might seek counsel and get some wisdom on how to be unified so they don't, so that individual doesn't feel like they're half male, half female. That makes sense. But I do think biblically we should realize that uh, sex is not something that we can just uh, play with. It's des- we're designed by God with a certain gender. The other thing that I think believers should appreciate from a book like this is not only equipping them in terms of a, a better, more articul- articulate uh, apologetic approach to many of the hot topics of the day from a biblical perspective, but also some of the topics that kind of swirl within the church that oftentimes uh, we need to gain a deeper, more foundational understanding on. Uh, It is probably unlikely for the most part that the average non-believer is going to want to engage you in questions about the Trinity But we know that uh, modalism or uh, Trinitarianism within the church, there are corners where this is hotly contested and debated. And from time to time, I think at least from a good biblical foundation, from a discipleship standpoint, it's important that believers understand what the Bible actually has to say on topics that are very relevant to the Christian's faith, particularly in issues such as the Trinity. Sure, that's a good point, Craig, where we see that God is one in essence and three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that there's a lot of confusion today, and I think that in my last book I wrote called Doubting Toward Faith, I wrestled with some of my own doubts and wrote about some of my own struggle with it and shared how, you know, we're living in a melting pot culture of belief. We're like a nation without a mission statement. We're not what we once were. We're not sure what we're becoming, but in between, in this tweener space, it's great. And there's lots of questions, and we're experiencing what Jennifer Heck talked about, this idea of cosmopolitan doubt, where my belief's bumping up against somebody else's belief, and we're wondering, how can I know what I believe is really true? And I think that we need to help people to deal with these questions and with their doubts, and a lot of people are intimidated to share their doubts, because they're going to feel like they're an immature believer if they do. And I want to say, as a pastor and as an apologist, that in the absence of certainty, there's always going to be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview closes the doubt gap the best? And me, as a Christian pastor, I can struggle with doubts, but I believe when I look at the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and when I think about our worldview compared to other worldview options, I believe Christianity is uh, the greatest worldview standing and offers the greatest amount of evidence for us. Um. Do we also have to uh, concede that there are some topics for which there's just not real clear 
direction within Scripture, uh, that sort of uh, now we see uh, through a da- glass darkly uh, approach that, you know, there are certain mysteries, so to speak, that we do not fully comprehend and give believers a sense of relief that that's okay? I think so. I think it makes us, uh, look, if somebody gets discipled, they're a brand new Christian, and then they go, okay, I've been discipled, I've had my five hours of training, uh, they're often ultra-dogmatic. They go out and they feel like they've, they've read their Left Behind series, and they know how God's going to wrap the world up. And <laughs> Look, the reality is, is if we're going to go in and out of some of these doctrinal positions on age of the earth, or the timing of Jesus' return, or which translation to use, or whether or not one's a Calvinist or Arminian, and I think we need to give people some real freedom to think, because sometimes we can give people such a tight doctrinal list that then if they're just thinking because they read another book, not trying to disobey God, just wrestling with the argument, they can feel like they're doing something wrong. And the reality is, is they're just thinking. And I think that's when we get back to, we need to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbors ourselves. As Christians, our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're keeping our faith there. And then we live it with a lot of flexibility, and we give each other a lot of grace, because we're splintering the Church to death in the name of our pet particularities, and I think we need to loosen up a little bit. And I think that's a key point that you make, because there's also this perspective that says, listen, um, there are some doctrines, so to speak, that are going to constantly be open for debate. I mean, you know, upon baptism, should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I don't know. I mean, I I think there's evidence to show, certainly from Christ's experience with it, that uh, the dunking is the way to go. That said, it certainly doesn't classify as a damnable doctrine, meaning that if you don't embrace it or believe it certain ways, uh, that that you're going to be outside the confines of of, of so-called normative or, or um, a historical Christianity. But there's also this notion that we can sometimes get so caught up in the minutia of some of these completely unwinnable debates that we we end up seeing our relationship with very Christ himself suffer, don't we? I just would love to see the Church at large really grasp what you're saying right there, because if we could just get the beauty and the joy of learning. Yes, there's a corpus of theology that we're to believe, but the reality is, if we've got over 40,000 denominations, uh, you know, uh, you can pit many of these great theologians that are our heroes, and they contradict each other on some of these viewpoints as well. That doesn't mean that undercuts our belief ultimately in the authority of Scripture. What it means is people are finite. And yes, there's one interpretation from God's perspective, but as humans, I believe, myself included, none of us walk around as perfect interpreters of Scripture. So that should create some humility in us that, you know what, we're going to do our best to show ourselves as workmen who are approved of studying the Word of God, but we're going to be humble with the way that we handle that with others as well. And in doing so, of course, being prepared to give the answer, to not only deepen your own relationship with Christ and understanding of your own faith, but then to be more effective communicator at discipling believers that you've won to Christ, and certainly hope that's part of uh, your your life experience, and then, too, to be prepared to share your faith with others. This book goes a long way in a very easy fashion. It answers the question, does God exist? That and 51 other compelling questions about God, the Bible, and quite frankly, life in general, wrestling with a lot of the questions, contemporary ones that we struggle with to this very day. Bobby Conway is the author of the new book, lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church, located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, great 
Job on the Book, newly published, by the way, by our friends at Harvest House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through Pastor Conway's website, Bobby Conway, spell it just the way it sounds, Bobby Conway Online. Dot com. That's bobbyconwayonline.com. And, you know, if you're looking for some quick, easy to nibble on and digest uh, and memorize content, not only the book, but also uh, we mentioned about his YouTube channel uh, that provides, what did you say, Bobby, over a thousand videos? Well, we're working close to a thousand. We've got about 900 right now, so almost a thousand different videos. And these are all called the One Minute Apologist that deals with just short bite-sized chunks of information on a whole variety of topics that that very much mimic uh, what the book does. So you can check that out on YouTube by simply uh, doing a a Google search. Go to YouTube and look for the One Minute Apologist. Again, the book, Does God Exist? And 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible, newly published by Harvest House. Our thanks to Pastor Bobby Conway for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi his focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's, it's funny because you describe that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages. And it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life. And so looking back over those years, you know, meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us, but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing, it's, um, it's really, um, you know, it's life. 
This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? So he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and starting around Christmas the year before, he started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery. And, you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially, it, we didn't we didn't realize what it was. And then finally, um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer, and he probably only had a few years to live. And so at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality, and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a right. little bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every uh, physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the weather. Right. It's just so rare. Um, uh, exactly. And then, you know, a, a little while before the diagnosis, we started to um, suspect it. And that was when he, um, you know, uh, really started getting it checked out. And then soon the diagnosis came. Lucy, what was this like for you when the diagnosis came? You're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt, at least in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly, this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's It was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had, we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get, you know, expedited workup and, and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room. And no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room. And because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of 
nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking at it with our own eyes and then being doctors, we knew that this was a terminal illness. So it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once. Um, and then luckily, I think we skipped over the phase of thinking, why me? How could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people. This kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon, and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions, uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of cancer myself in my own life. Uh, the initial question of why me, I think, is is very normal. It's very human. But then it maybe even begs a bigger question. Why not me? I mean, it happens. Uh, that's right. So, exactly. Paul, wrote, exactly. Paul wrote that in the book and said, yeah, the answer would be why not me, you know? So w- once you get over the, the initial shock, was there, did you go through feelings of anger, that that sense of, of this this young relationship, you'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point. That that all of a sudden, this the love of your life was going to be ripped from you. I mean, certainly the the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, and then sort of the, the real task, we were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we, we certainly had these, um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing, he, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon, had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely and you, you have to make sense of a whole new world and set of circumstances. And I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea. Um, and so writing ultimately became... The, the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short, we thought we had our whole lives together, suddenly there's now a, an expiration date that we can see, so you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with, and that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime, uh, caring for patients, and you're used to the physician-patient relationship. Uh, you are the one who's giving the, the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment, or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient, and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul the physician to patient Paul. 
And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being Physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is you know really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helped us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which even if you have the knowledge um, the the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it, and it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be. Um, if you're lucky, it was um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he, he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see, and it helped shape my own, own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, and we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage 4 lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become When Breath Becomes Air. You mentioned about his, his background and love for literature. Was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he, he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there, was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day-to-day -day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that attends to a stage four um, cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter? Um, yes, exactly. All of those things. It's wild because if you'd asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grew up, he definitely would have said, 
I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, and uh, then the writing of the book, it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He became, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36, just starting his neurosurgical career. And then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments. And it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of, um, you know, how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the Appa desk at the New York Times. And they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute, um, just a real um, positive experience hearing from doctors and patients. And ultimately, quickly from that essay came a book deal. Mm. Um, uh, And then it was sort of a, it was a journal like you described. He was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time. very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing, it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole um, everything he'd learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life, and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter, don't really think through, uh, has my life been meaningful, and, 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 and how do we make uh, a sense of, of, of meaning and purpose in life, even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are, are very unwelcome, at least early on, and that is death, like in the case of, of Paul, who was facing his mortality at an age probably uh, a third of what is, is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables. And then, too, to leave that that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then too to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy. And he's trying to write during that. And so as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple different things, like 
he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I, should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever? And then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, those are the parts I would love. I would love the parts that were real and authentic. And the book is quite intimate and detailed and raw. Um, and I think that's partly why people are responding to it, sort of unflinching and really honest. And um, and it's his story. I, I wasn't going to ask him to change his story. So it did surprise me how um, uh, sort of intimate, the types of intimate things he shared. But I actually think that was a really wise decision. It turned out to be really positive, including for me. Um, you know, it, it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, They will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together, and then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs, but to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing too that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you in in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that, that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, that death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it, the reality is it's not, it's not the end. It's just a different phase of love. Uh, elaborate on that. Oh, I love that quote so much. He, um, C.S. Lewis writes that and um, agrees observed. And he, he says exactly that. Bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases. And that I just gasped as I read it because I felt that way. I felt after Paul died, I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the, um, the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book When Breath Becomes Air into the real book, and then helping Random House choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how Paul died and reflecting on Paul, those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if Paul and I are still a team, um, still working on this book, and you know, like I'm still doing something to help Paul live out his life. It's really interesting. It's um, I knew I would feel sad and anxious after he died, and I have, but I didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same, and they have. I wrote a I wrote an essay in the New York Times called "My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow," and it's about it's about that exact idea, and I think. I've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief. Your your young daughter was too young to, to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? I hope so. It's really my prized possession, and I'm, I'm 
I can't wait until she can read it. Um, the takeaway for for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today, Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age, and then wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our of our presence, so to speak, having been here on earth. In, in terms of the big takeaway, if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from Paul's book, what would it be? You know, the book, he's writing it, as you know, from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man, and he's talking about facing mortality. And the thing he wanted to share is, you know, as you as you're dying and as you're living um how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful um uh you know and it's <laughs> i keep being afraid you know people will ask me so what so what is the meaning of life and what is when rest becomes there say about that and i think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning um and that's sort of what he gets deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in, in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us. And that is to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at, at uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life. And yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to to die with grace and and what that picture looks like that's a part of life that that you know we don't understand a lot about we spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that and yet learning how to to make the the final moments of life have as much significance and value and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on earth, I think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book, again, is called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Catalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Catalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.